Okay, welcome, welcome, welcome. Genesis to Revelation. Genesis to Malachi, I should say. Second time around. We are in Genesis chapter 13. And if you were here this morning, I will be talking about things tonight that I didn't talk about this morning. So it's worth it that you came out tonight. I'm going to make your time worth it. Genesis chapter 13. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you, Lord, that we can begin and end the day with the Word of God opened up and our hearts receiving all of it, Lord. And I just pray that no one would leave this room without... Lord, just having the, just that supernatural thing that happens when our heart interacts with the Word, Lord, and, the, and what it does, and the Holy Spirit uh, just enlightening us and strengthening us through your Word. I pray that you would do that this evening, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so anyone need a Bible? Anyone need a Bible? Genesis chapter 13. Just by way of review. Mankind has returned to what he, she was right before the flood of Noah. But rather than judge the world and wipe out the world, as he did in Genesis 6 through through 9, rather than initiating a plan of judgment as he did with Noah, Noah, go build an ark, this time he initiates a plan of salvation, which is going to culminate in the coming of Jesus Christ. And it all starts in Genesis chapter 12, where we were last Sunday night. It says, the Lord had said to Abraham, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And and how is that going to happen? Through Jesus Christ. His descendant, who is in his loins, the book of Hebrews says at this point, in Abraham's loins, all families of the earth would be blessed. Starts all starts right here. So Abraham goes out. He goes out. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 says he went out not knowing where he was going, which again is at the heart of faith. Trusting the Lord with the calling of your life, not knowing all the details. That is faith. <laughs> it's the heart of what faith really is. But in verse 7, he, had, he has left now. He's left the land of Ur. He's gone through Haran, which is up in modern-day Turkey. Actually, we have the map. Sean number two. 
Started off right here, went up to Haran. My theory is that his father likes skiing because there's all these mountains here. And said, no way are we leaving this skiing. Um, uh, and, uh, and so he stayed up there. And shouldn't have, shouldn't have even taken his father because uh, verse 1 says, get, get away from your family. Uh, but he did, and that's what happens sometimes. Uh, um, you start taking from the orders from, from mom and dad rather than from the Lord. And uh, when you're a kid, that's okay. It's what the Bible tells you to do. But when you're an adult, you have to obey the Lord. And so he goes from Haran all the way down here. And, there, and when he's right here in Canaan, that's where it says in verse 7, uh, verse seven it says, uh, the, the Lord appeared to him, Abram and, and said, to your descendants, I will give you this land. And then in verse 10, Again, we were in this last week. It says there was a famine in the land, and he went down to Egypt. And so just because there's a... God never told him to go to Egypt. He's going to get a lot of trouble in Egypt. And just because there's a famine in your life doesn't mean that you're not in the will of God. Lesson number one about the life of faith. Uh, Don't take your father and nephew along when he's telling you not to. And lesson number two, just because there's a famine in your life doesn't mean that you're not in the will of God. I know for myself, some of the most important seasons of faith building in my life, there was a famine. And the Lord said, you stay right where you are. So he goes to Egypt, gets in all kinds of trouble, gives his wife over to the Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh finds out, uh, returns her. <laughs> in, in verse uh, 13, it says, uh, chapter 13, verse 20, it says, that, And Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him to the south. And so apparently, he takes some kind of southern route. Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Now, let's just get this one thing straight. Uh, Being rich is not unspiritual. It's not unbiblical to be rich. Unfortunately, the the church throughout throughout its history, that idea has got into people's heads. That being rich, no, being rich uh, can be a tremendous gift of God used of the Lord. Now, it's true that being spiritual does not, uh, does not necessarily mean that you will become rich. Being faithful, Abraham is the father of faith, just because you are faithful to, to the Lord does not mean that you're going to become rich. Very, very few people become rich. But um, uh, the Lord entrusts riches to certain people. He entrusts riches to certain people who can handle it. Most Christians I know cannot handle riches. Why? They haven't gotten to that place in their life uh, that they handle the riches appropriately. And, and sometimes they, oftentimes they'll have to go through some hard knocks before they can handle riches. But here, Abraham was rich and he, he was safe to bless in this way, uh, one of the prayers that that I always have for myself and for the leadership of the church: Are we safe to bless? If God blessed us, would we be safe with the blessing? 
Uh, and so it's a good prayer for, for you two to ask. Verse 3, and, when, and he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. Sean, can we have the, uh, the map again? And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. So he, he returns uh, and he goes um, back. And there's Bethel there. Bethel means house of God. And once again, we've, he's messed up really, really, really bad with this venture down to Egypt. He, 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 as I talked about this morning, um, he hurt people, his wives and others. And also, he disgraced the name of the Lord. But the wonderful, wonderful picture here in verse 4, once we're in Christ, we can always go back to that place we were at the first. Um, Revelation chapter 2 Jesus to the church in Ephesus, you've lost your first love. Go back to that first place. And, and, and it's the wonderful thing about the mercy of the Lord. God is a merciful God. And if you're broken about your failings, there's no reason in the world that you should hesitate to go back to that place and receive that grace and mercy. It's a tragedy when Christians, because of failures that they have made, that they hesitate to go back to the Lord. What would have happened if Abram said, man, I've made a complete idiot of myself. Not only was I unloving to the Lord, Pharaoh now probably, you know, just a disgrace to who Jehovah is. And then all the people who are with me. There's a band of a few hundred people with him at this point. Look at the horrible witness I've been to. That. What if he never returned to the Lord? It's crazy. It's crazy not to return to the Lord. He's always got things ahead in your life that he wants to do with you. Verse 5 says, Lot also who went with Abram had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. And so this morning I did a rare departure from our study uh, through Ephesians, and I, I taught on this, this chapter, and it was a, a, a message on partial obedience and the consequences of partial obedience. And so there, were, there are at least four consequences that we discussed. Number one, it's a waste of, waste of time when you obey partially, which he did. He took his family and God said he did great by leaving the land of Ur. But he, he took his family with him who convinced him to stay in Haran. So he wasted years. He wasted times. Partial t- time. Partial obedience is a, 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 a waste of time. It'll waste your time. Partial obedience will also hurt people uh, you love. 
and it'll hurt people that you don't love. Partial obedience winds up hurting people. It's not a, a victimless crime when you don't do something that God has told you to do or you do something that he's told you not to do. Uh, number three was uh, it disgraces the name of the Lord. And number four we talked about it's a waste of energy, but there's another issue here. It just, it, it's their strife. It just causes strife, and that's what it does here. It causes a lack of unity. It, it, um, there's a bickering here between Lot's workers and Abraham's workers. And, and so, again, we keep seeing this, uh, the consequences of it. And, you know, it's a humbling thing. Part of, part of what the, you know, the Lord allows it all to happen, the wonderful thing, you know, God works it out for good because he's doing a work of humility in Abraham's life through these consequences that are happening to him. It's got to be humbling here. So Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Lot was his nephew. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. So he takes um, the land uh, closer uh, to, in the plain closer to Sodom, and this is not up there right now. I don't know. I don't see it. I believe Sodom's over down near, near this, this area right here on the screen. Lot in the Bible, is a type of the flesh. Abraham is, represents, he's the, he's the father of faith. Lot's going to wind up in Sodom. Lot never should have made, moved into Sodom. It does say in Second Peter that he was righteous. He had the righteousness of, the, of Jehovah on him. But he, 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 he chose this, this area towards Sodom. Eventually, he's going to wind up there. Appealed to his eyes, appealed to his flesh, and he's the younger guy. He never should have even been choosing himself. He should have said, "Wait a second, you're the elder. You're my dad's brother. You choose." Uh, some of his character here. We're going to see character issues with Lot for the next um, few chapters. We are going to to see here. But Lot chooses uh, for himself all the plain of Jordan. It says in verse 12, Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. So Sodom at this time was a, a city just of great luxury, of wealth, very appealing to the flesh, to the eyes. And uh, doesn't mean that it's wrong for a Christian to live in a place 
where there's a lot of wealth and there's a lot of luxury, the, all the, the, the whole question is, what's God's will for your life? What is God's will for your life? <laughs> you know, uh, Pastor Rob, who was here with us this weekend, man, he's walking around Boston, and he's thinking, this place is incredible. <laughs> I mean, the city is a beautiful city. Um, there's nothing wrong with living in a beautiful city. Uh, but the question is, all, are you called here? And, and, and so Lot has no business, particularly moving right into Sodom. More than that, of course. Later, verse uh, 13 says, The men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. So Israel does indeed have a claim on this property. Uh, Don't tell the United Nations that, but they have a claim on this property, and uh, here it is in Genesis 13. Now don't lose sight of the fact that part of what Abraham sees when he goes up and um, when he goes up and, and the Lord says, lift your eyes northward, southward, eastward, westward, that includes all the area that, that Lot took. So Lot thought he was getting this whole area. Uh, but all of it was Abra- Abraham's. It was rather, a, a better way of putting it, it was promised to Abraham and his descendants. For all the land, verse 15, which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. The wonderful thing about Abraham is that he would live his whole life as a sojourner, a pilgrim. As Christians, we're told we're pilgrims. A pilgrim or a sojourner is someone who's just passing through. A, A sojourner, a pilgrim, is someone who doesn't take roots. And we're told not to take roots in this world. It doesn't mean we can't enjoy what the Lord has for us. The world, in a sense, we've seen the first few chapters of Genesis. The world is a garden made by the Lord for us. So we're supposed to enjoy it, but not firmly rooted in it be different in the millennial kingdom after Christ's return. But um, Abraham is a phenomenal example of a sojourner. You will, he never really, uh, he, he, he really, ne- he, he's possessing the, the land in a way, but he's still a sojourner in the sense that, that he goes from tent to tent to tent and he doesn't really own it. He just buys a couple piece of, pieces of property, I think, for a burial plot, but that's about it. And he's a wonderful example of a pilgrim. But it, the Lord does say, I give to you and your descendants. It's, it's, it's really, it's, it's a forward promise. Verse 16, and I will make your descendants uh, as the dust of the earth, so that the earth, then your descendants also could, uh, rather than your, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then the descendants also could be numbered. I mean, it, that is quite an unbelievable uh, promise here in that, uh, what is he at this time? 
something like, I think he's, is he 90 years old by this time? I mean, he's an old man. His wife's womb is dead, in a sense. And uh, he's being told that if, that God's going to make his descendants as the dust of the earth. So remember, keep in mind, he's the father of faith. Romans chapter 4 says he's the father of us all. Verse 17, arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, width, for I give it to you. So in a sense, talk about a feeling of power. It's kind of hard to be humble here. Anywhere he walked, it's like the land became his. It's, it's, It's that sense there. So... You will see Abraham traveling from place to place and um, wherever he travels, he's going to have that incredible sense of worship. Wow, all this is mine and my descendants forever. Verse 18, then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelled by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and he built an altar there to the Lord. By the way, you'll never see Lot building altars anywhere. (laughs) We'll never see him praying to the Lord, talking to God, anything like that. But Abram, you see, building altars. He had to worship God. He was a worshiper. It's a wonderful thing about being a child of God. Wherever you are in the world, where can I go to worship? If you're going on vacation and you're saying, oh, I don't have to go to church because I'm on vacation, something's desperately wrong with your faith. Are you even saved? If you're saying that, that's, uh, that's not what people say when they're on the road. It's like, where can I go? doesn't mean there's not grace. You'd be up in this church from time to time. But, but children of God want to worship God. It's, it's the most precious thing in life. We have the Holy Spirit in us, and the Holy Spirit's driving us to Jesus. He's driving us uh, to the Father. Chapter 14. Okay. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elasar, and Cheddar Lyomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of the nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemavar, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. What does that mean, by the way, title king of nations at the end of uh, chapter 14? Probably means that there was a confederacy of kings and he was the head confederate. He was the head guy. Probably that's what that means. All these joined together in the Valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea, or the Dead Sea, right, right down here. Twelve years they served Chedar, Lomar, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. So Sodom was one of the places that was overtaken by this confederacy of Kent, and for thirteen years they went ahead and paid their taxes and said, okay, we'll agree to pay these taxes to you, you confederacy of kings. We'll do that. But after 13 years, they say, why are we doing this? This is a lot of money. And they stopped it. So in the 14th year, verse 5, Chedorlamer, I 
did better the first time. And the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Eshtaroth Karnam, the Zuzim in, uh, in Ham, the, the Emim in Shava Kiriathim, and the Horites in their mountains of Seir, as far as El Paran. It's the first mention of the Spanish language in the Bible, right there, uh, verse 6. El Paran. That's just a joke. Um, El is, probably means God. It does mean God. Which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishvat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the countries of the Malachites and also the Amorites who dwelled in uh, Hazan Temer and the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zobaim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in the battle in the valley of Siddim against Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elassar, four kings against five. So never let anyone convince you that this is just a compilation of fables and legends. There's, they're naming names here. This is a book of history. This is a reliable, 100% reliable record of things that actually happened in history. This is not how fables are written. They don't go into this kind of detail. It says, now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits and the Rockefeller the really, really, really rich one, the first one. Or man, it's either him or one of his grandsons, the student of the Bible, read this and said, you know, we better go look for oil in this whole region. <laughs> because that word asphalt, it's, uh, it's kind of tar pit, that type of thing. And, and obviously, you know, in, in, in this area, man, it's a lot of, a lot of uh, oil has been found. Not all the places they've looked for oil in the land of Israel hasn't been found, but obviously in that region. But the Christians in the late 19th century would read this in the early 19th, uh, the, the late 19th century, early 20th century, and say, wow, there's got to be something there. And it says there were asphalt pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled... So apparently these asphalt pits had something to do with, uh, it was somehow used in battle or became a great obstacle in battle. You know, kind of maybe like sinking sand, or the, the type of thing that became a great hindrance to, to some of the kings there. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They took Lot Abram's son who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and they departed. So they kidnapped Lot, Abraham's nephew. Verse 13, then one who had escaped from, escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew for he dwelt by the terebinth tree of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and the brother of Anor and, the, and they were allies with Abram. Now, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants 
who were born in his own house and went and pursued as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. So interesting picture here, by the way, of, of, of Abram having 318 trained soldiers. It's like a militia. We do think of Abram, Abram as a peaceful guy, a man of peace. He was. However, this is a spectacularly dangerous world at the time. And Abraham protected himself. Now, it, it also appears he had some different alliances with different people in the land, friends that he had. David did the same thing. Um, but, uh, but he has this, this militia. But again... Partial obedience never should have taken Lot with him in the first place. But now that he's taken him, he gets kidnapped. He's got to do something about it. I'm telling you, partial obedience will lead you into a big, big, big mess. And this is an example of it. He's got to mobilize his militia and go rescue his, his, his nephew that he never should have taken in the first place. It's so much easier just to obey 100% what the Lord is telling you to do. Whether it's something out of the word of God or whether it's just the Lord is speaking something to your, something to your heart, you know you're supposed to do it. The best thing to do always, the, the thing that will result in the most joy, the most pleasure, it's just to obey and do it. When God tells you to do something, do all of it. Verse 16, so he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his good as well as the women and the people. So he basically rescues not only Lot, but he more or less rescues Sodom and the king of Sodom even though, as we will we'll see here, he doesn't have a whole lot of respect for the guy. He, he rescues Sodom and Gomorrah. And so verse 17 says, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Shadur Laomer and the kings who were with him. Verse 18, fascinating verses here in the Bible. It says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. So interesting, he's a king. And he's also a priest who was also a king and a priest. Anybody? Jesus. Jesus, by the way, also was a prophet. The the three offices, king, priest, and prophet, all in one. By the way, King David was another. uh, There is a reference to actually David having a 
a priestly kind of role. But and that, and that, of course, was a foreshadowing of, of, of Jesus. So Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now, Salem was the same city of what eventually would be Jerusalem. Salem, Shalom, means peace, the king of peace. Who is the king of peace? Anybody? Jesus. Over 50%, I think roughly, of biblical scholars believe this was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. When you see a man, a physical manifestation of God in the Old Testament, it is Jesus. Most, I would say, conservative biblical scholars believe this is Jesus Christ himself. And there are other reasons too. Well, let's read about them. It says, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then it says, and he gave him a tithe of all that he had. So if you go to the book of Hebrews, why don't you do that with me? We have a little time here. Hebrews chapter 7. Lo and behold, book of Hebrews, chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, all really a description of Jesus Christ. I, I took some time just in my afternoon prayer time recently to, I, 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 I go to different chapters in the Bible that describes Jesus, and, and I just write out every single verse that's describing him in certain chapters, and I did so in, in Hebrews 4 through, I think, it's, I think it's 9. But here we have a description, uh, Melchizedek showing up, and it's a description of Jesus. Why don't we start in chapter 6, verse 19. This hope we have, I love this verse, as an anchor of the soul, meaning hope eternal life by faith in Jesus Christ. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence, meaning the very presence of God, behind the veil. Now that's a reference to just the presence of God in heaven, but it's, it's, all of this is allusions to the tabernacle, which was and, and the, the most holy place in the tabernacle, which was behind the veil. And, of course, in the, in the most holy place, you had the mercy seat. Above the mercy seat, you had the Shekinah, the glory, the, the presence of the Lord. And so this is a wonderful verse about the security of your salvation. It's held as an anchor, and it's right there, which has been lodged in the most holy place, in the presence, the presence behind the veil. Verse 20, where, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, 
having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Here's the same guy. Now things are going to get a little complicated here. Try to, try to, um, try to stay with me. Verse 7 says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, rather chapter 7, verse 1, says, For this Melchizedek, king of the Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. That's Genesis 14. That's what we just read. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then the, also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now, what is going on here? Well, some Jews say there's no way um, that Jesus um, could have been a priest. He can't be the Messiah. Um, The Messiah is going to be both a king and a priest uh, and a prophet because he is of the line of Judah. He was not of the line of Aaron. Aaron was the high priest. He was not of the line, rather, of, of Levi, and more specifically, um, the family of, of Aaron within the, uh, the, the line of, of Levi. And the point here, the writer of the Hebrews, is that's because, verse 3, Jesus is, uh, rather, verse 4, um, verse 1 there, he is of the order of Melchizedek, meaning, and Melchizedek is, verse 3, is without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, meaning very different from the line of Aaron. Aaron was um, a a, a Levite. He was a, you could say, an earthly forerunner of the real thing. But the real thing, Jesus, priest, had neither beginning or end. So, this is why scholars believe this Melchizedek we're reading about in Genesis 14 is, is Jesus Christ himself because what's up with this guy? It says he's a priest with no beginning and no end. So it says here, um, let's just continue reading. Verse 4 in, chapter, in, in Hebrews chapter 7, it says, Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. So he's telling Jews, remember Hebrews, he's writing to Jews, and he's telling them, he says, guys, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And you know the principle. The lesser is always blessed by the better. And he's convincing the Jews. The book of Hebrews is all about the just the glory of, 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 of Jesus. Jesus, chapter 1 of Hebrews, is better than angels. He's better than the prophets. He's better than the priesthood. He's Jesus. He's the Son of God without beginning or end. Verse 8, 
Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom he is witness that he lives. Even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Uh, and, and, and so um, here you have it, this, this reference to, to Melchizedek. Um, and, and, and then in Psalm 110, verse 4, another fascinating verse about the Messiah out of nowhere, if you study the Psalms, seemingly out of nowhere, David says of the Messiah, verse 17 of Hebrews 7, he says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so what he's saying is, look, Messiah is not going to become from the line of Aaron. He's going to be of the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, meaning a priesthood without beginning or end, very different from the Aaronic or the Levite priesthood. So there you have it. I mean, that's getting heavy there. Uh, But um, I tell you, uh, Bible scholars, wow, do they love this stuff. Uh, in Genesis chapter 14, uh, verse 21 says, Now the king, uh, the, I'm back in Genesis 14, verse 21 says, Now the king of Sodom uh, said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hands to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap and that I will not take anything that is yours lest you say, you should say, I have made Abram rich except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre, let them take their portion. And so he himself takes nothing He's clearly a man who's growing in faith. His faith muscles have been developed now. He's a man, you know, faith is more than just going out when God tells you to go out. It's it's going out with integrity. And he's not going to take money from this charlatan, this wicked man, this, the, the, the king of Sodom. He, he cares so much about the glory of God. And he knows full well that he, if, he, you know, if, if he takes money um, from this man in Sodom, eventually Sodom's going to say, oh, yeah, yeah I, I, made that guy, uh, I made that guy rich. Ever have someone give you something and they remind you of it for a few years? A few decades, <laughs> whatever. Remember, you know, a few years ago. Oh yeah, and that they're reminding Abram. He he is just part of faith. Part of our life of faith is just being consumed with zeal for the glory of God. I pray in my own quiet time. Lord, give me a passion for your glory. Give me a passion to see you glorified in the city of Boston. 
Give me a passion to see your kingdom advance and grow mightily in the kingdom. In the city of Boston. And replace any selfish ambition that I may have. Replace it for, with a passion for your glory. An ambition for your glory. And so a, a wonderful example here of man who, a man who wants who has integrity, but he wants to protect the glory of God. So we are going to uh, stop there at this point.